Welcome back to the Global Greek Influence Podcast. To be up to date with news from the Global Greek Influence Podcast and suggest your topics, subscribe, like, and review the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and four more podcasting platforms. You can also contact the Global Greek Influence through the podcast Facebook and Twitter accounts, the podcast website, globalgreekinfluence.com, and LinkedIn page. I want to welcome Dr. George Stasiopoulos. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you very much. Let me introduce you to George. George is a political scientist and cross-cultural consultant, an empirical and theoretical expert in French and European politics, including Greek politics and geopolitics, founder of a business consultancy under his name, a member of the cross-cultural consultants network, Olivier Soumami. George studied international trade and then political sciences in Sorbonne, then finished his PhD in political sciences at the University of East Paris. Apart from teaching geopolitics at the European Business School, he also lectures international business strategy at the Frey and engineering school in Paris. Today, we will discuss under the prism of cross-cultural affairs, the French political scene, the EU integration, the 21st century geopolitics and hybrid alliances, and the French-Greek comparison on democracy. George, you have been actively politicized in France, something that, as you say, came out naturally as an Athenian to whom politics is just like the air you breathe. But this political activism has also played a significant role in becoming an integral part of French society and its current culture. What have you learned from your participation in political campaigns in France about the country's politics? Participating in political parties, in political meetings, is something uh, really exciting and something uh, that changed my life. You learn a lot of things about uh, local identities, about political behavior, about political ideologies, how we do politics in other country. I was used in Greek politics and I was found in Paris. So my first meeting took place on November 17, 22. It was the founding Congress of a big conservative party that was called UMP, the French Conservatives. They dominate French politics for 12 years. What I learned, first of all, the first thing I learned is that French political parties are very small. It's very strange for someone coming from Greece or in the United States. Yes, because uh, during the French Revolution, there was a law, we called it the Chapelier Law. And according to this law, we don't want any kind of intermediary bodies between the people, the voters and the parliament. So for the first time, we had real political parties in France. Uh, one century later, I think it was the Baltico Russo law of uh, uh, 1901. So first of all, French political parties are very small. Imagine you have big parties like the Socialist Party or the Conservative Party with no more than 100,000 members. It's very strange. Never forget in France, there are 49 million voters. So French political parties are very small. There is another explanation about that, cultural one. In France, we have one of the strongest public administrations in the world, a highly centralized country. So the state is so strong 
and French uh, public administration, they have their own rules, they have their own traditions, their own way of thought, and political parties cannot do a lot of things. Finally, there's another thing, uh, political meetings in France. It's very funny, they're very small. I remember in Greece, we had political meetings with one million people, I was in Athens, I can tell you about that. So I'll give you an example. It was the final meeting of the 2009 European elections in Paris. Uh, Paris area population is 12 million people. 5,000 people participated in the meeting. Uh, 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 and the former minister said, it's a huge, a big success. Can you imagine that? It's absolutely amazing for a Greek guy. I repeat, 12 million people living in Paris, 10 million voters, final meeting of the 2009 European election and just 5,000 people. Uh, so it's absolutely amazing. Finally, um, the, there is a, a big difference between the French and the Greek political system. Uh, in France, almost every election, there are two rounds, just like a football match, first half time, second half time, which means that you have not one, but two quite different elections. So you have been an active participant at the UMP's um, founding congress on November 17, 2002. Uh, now, UMP stands for Union for a Popular Movement, which was a center-right political party in France. Just to get a flavor of the internal politics within a party, what would you remember the most from the UMP's political party internal election for a new leader? Just to have a comparison to what happens to Greece's political parties' internal elections? First of all, I want to say something. In Greece, as like in other countries, in the UK, we have the same political parties for almost one century or for 40, 50, 30 years. In France, it's something completely different. The French side has a long-standing tradition. Every 10 years, we demolish the party and we build a new one. It's very strange. The French left is not the same thing. The French Socialist Party is one of the oldest parties in France uh, since uh, 900, so 1,900. But the, the French right likes to destroy, to demolish uh, uh, the party and build a new one every 10, 12 years. So, uh, you know, internal elections or primaries, no matter the country, are the toughest elections for many reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, they concern just a small chunk of the electorate, a small part of the France. I told you in France there are 49 million voters. The struggle between François Mitterrand and Michel Rocard, two big French personalities of the French left, is a legendary struggle in the French party politics. Exactly the same thing happened many years ago between uh, Jacques Chirac and Edouard Balladur to big personalities of the French Gaullist party. I'm telling you about, about uh, uh, just like in Colosseum Arena in Rome, struggles be between gladiators, uh, incarnating uh, uh, different uh, parts of the electorate. There is another thing of wh why these struggles are so strong. The French political system is a presidential election. The chief of state is the president, the one who really governs is the president. The French president uh, has a lot of power, which means that everybody knows the one who will be chosen to be the leader of the party could be the next presidential candidate. That makes the struggle terrible. There is one exception. It was very, very funny. I remember this debate. It was in 2016 in the primaries of, of the French conservatives between two former prime ministers, 
François Fillon et Alain Juppé. During the debate, they were very polite. It seems they knew each other since they were almost teenagers. They even had uh, a lot of uh, common ideas. So there was a lot, a lot of respect. But this is the exception, not the rule, because traditionally, in this kind of, of primary elections, there is a lot of passion and there are very, very strong rivalries. We are going to discuss about uh, a comparison between the French and the Greek democracy, but not in terms of democracy as a political system rather than comparing two republics. It's really amazing that you mentioned the, the mentality of the French political system, which clearly shows to me if French people are not really afraid of moving on and forming different political parties every 10 to 12 years. This means that, well, of course, I'm not a sociologist, but it shows to me that uh, the French society is adaptable and uh, makes quite um, quick movements towards the future just by seeing what's really happening in the now or what's going to come next. You gave an invited speech at the French Political Science Association, the 12th Congress, in particular of this uh, Political Science Association in Paris with a title, In the Name of the Father, of the Son, and the Power, the Greek family democracy, a French comparison. So is the French Republic a Greek family democracy? Not seeing Greek democracy as a historical notion rather than the modern Hellenic Republic? An excellent question. First of all, have many countries, United States, the Kennedy dynasty, the Bush family, Clintons, in Pakistan, the Bhutto family, the Gandhi in India. So it's not something strange. It's something very interesting that voters trust uh, candidates coming from the same family. So, uh, so have to, there's a lot of cliche about that. I don't know. So in many countries, United States, Pakistan, India, and other countries who have members of the same family implicated in politics. So it's not so bad after all. So in, in France, uh, there is something Uh, very interesting about that. You know, before the French Revolution of 1789, you could become a general only if your four grandparents were aristocrats. Everything was relying on the origin and the reputation of your family. And then there was the French Revolution. And what happened is that you could become a general if you had the skills. We call that in the beginning was Napoleonian meritocracy, and then we call it now the Republican meritocracy. Everything relies on merit. And French voters, French people, uh, are very attached to this concept. That's why they choose quite often self-made candidates. I'll give you a specific example. For example, the 2007 presidential election. Nicolas Sarkozy, who won the election, was the son of a Hungarian immigrant. And when he was younger, his first job was to sell ice cream and then flowers. Socialist Ségolène Royal candidate, middle class, uh, her father was a French army officer. Uh, the centrist candidate, François Bayrou, was the son of, of a peasant. And even Jean-Marie Le Pen, he's a fisherman's son. So all the four main candidates Don't, didn't come from, from, from uh, big dynasties. All of them were self-made men and women. As I told you, this is the Republican meritocracy and French people like that. 
Of course, within the French Republic, there are some cases where members of the same family did a political career. But between you and me, it's not an asset. It's more or less a liability if, if your father, your mother, or some of the family is already implicated in politics. Martine Aubry. Martine Aubry is the daughter of Jacques Delors. She's the mayor of Lille. She never used the fact that she was the, 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 her father was Jacques Delors. Or we we'll have another case in the French Republic. It's very funny. Uh, Michel Debré, he was General de Gaulle's prime minister. And he, he was a jurist who wrote the constitution of the French Republic, the, the fifth one. His two sons when, uh, became ministers. Uh, the first one became minister of the interior. And, uh, and the other one uh, became minister of coordination. But there is a joke about that. When his son said, Daddy, we want to start to implicate in politics, he said, you must study something first, have a good professional career, and then perhaps you start uh, implicating politics. So this is how the French system. Even our prime minister now, uh, Jean Castex, his grandfather was a senator. But as I told you, within the French uh, uh, society, uh, voters like self-made men and women and being the son or the daughter of someone is not so well seen. Of course, I fully understand in Greece, uh, voting members of the same dynasty, the same family, is a question of stability. It's a question uh, in every country has different traditions uh, and customs and political history. You enjoy teaching European geopolitics to Erasmus students with whom you discuss European integration. What is your perspective on the EU integration based on the young generation feedback you receive during lectures? That's very interesting because we see in most European countries a big gap between younger, young people and older people, generation gap. Uh, young Europeans, including French, are much uh, more uh, European friendly. Perhaps they appreciate uh, peace, they appreciate uh, Erasmus program, they appreciate uh, all the good things uh, European integration has done the last uh, 60, 70 years. So there is a strong Europeanization within the European youth. I feel that by discussing with Germans, Italians, Spanish, other nationalities. Never forget, even the UK, during the referendum, 70% of young Britons voted for Bristay. So the first thing is a question of generation. Young Europeans feel, of course, they're very proud of national identities. The founder of Europe, Robert Schuman. Robert Schuman was the Minister of Foreign Affairs of General de Gaulle. He said, we can build a European integration, but not against nations. Of course, everybody is very proud being Italian, Spaniard, or Greek, or Italian. But of course, at the same time, there is uh, some kind of European identity. And I feel that this European identity becomes stronger and stronger year after year, especially among young students. Of course, uh, Europeans, uh, before the COVID virus crisis, uh, they were traveling a lot all over Europe. They speak foreign languages, they exchange ideas. And what I really enjoy, they are very curious learning how the same thing, how we do things in different European countries. Uh, uh, so um, I think, for example, in France, uh, we, we study carefully what Scandinavian countries are doing about ecology and about environmental policies. 
and who are inspired by Denmark, what they do. So, so I, I believe that students understand also that many problems are not uh, uh, French, Italian, Spaniards, or Greek. But problems like pollution, the air pollution, you know, you, you know, uh, pollution uh, does not stop in, in the national frontiers. It's a European affair. We had big floods one year ago in Germany and Belgium. So you, you have a natural disaster. The same thing happened between in the Alps, between France and Italy. Both countries were affected. So young students, young Europeans fully understand that most issues today are not uh, French, Italian, Spanish, German, but European. And we should work together to find solutions, the European level, not national level. Uh, most of them also work in different countries or, or they work with people coming from other European countries. It was very funny. Yesterday, I was discussing with a student of mine. She's working in a French insurance company. And she explained to me that for, for, for an insurance company, a French insurance company, there is no the French market, the Italian market, or, or the German market. It's the European insurance market. Because different insurance companies, just like uh, Generali, Allianz, or AXA, they share risks together. So if you see, you have this uh, Europeanization. And I think, of course, it's a very long process. Jacques Delors said say that European integration is not something that will be done within 10 years, perhaps 100, 150 years. But I feel that there is this strong Europeanization current Things uh, go better and better slowly. Europeans uh, learn how to find solutions to common problems uh, and not to fight each other. We're fighting each other for almost 900 years. And for example, I was reading yesterday the main discussions about the creation of a European military task force protecting European borders. It could be a new step. We have a common currency, we have uh, uh, many common things, so, uh, and perhaps tomorrow having a European uh, military force uh, protecting borders or, or, or offering security, different uh, could, be, could be a new step for, for the Europeanization of uh, young Europeans and especially students. Through your last answer, you gave me two very good points. For my following question, you mentioned that traveling allows European youth to understand uh, any cultural commonalities or differences within the European Union and make them feel more European uh, within the Union. At the same time, you uh, suggested that European businesses are much better integrated than the societies. So throughout your career, you provided cross-cultural analysis to private companies and you were invited to write cross-cultural geopolitics articles, for example, for the Korean Peninsula. How difficult is it and what would you pay attention to applying cross-cultural analysis in business and politics? I'll tell you a secret. First of all, I fully understand cross-cultural fears because I practice cross-cultural way of thinking myself for the last 25 years. I think in three different languages, and in English, in French, and in Greek. So I fully understand cultural differences because myself, I use three completely different ways of thought every day, almost every day. So my, my favorite book is the Dictionary of Geopolitics of a French geographer, Yves Lacoste. 
Yves Lacoste is considered as the father of the French geopolitics. In the introduction, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a huge book, a big book, just like that. And he, he, he explains something. When you have to deal with someone, a foreigner, the first thing you have to do is to take off your glasses. This means, in a very simple way, that someone who is a foreigner comes from another country, from another nation, he or she does not think like you. Quality, quantity, time, and space perception is not the same. Uh, we don't have to, to imagine that someone coming from, from Sweden thinks the same way someone from Malta, uh, that someone from Ireland thinks or behaves the same way someone from Cyprus. It's, it's not possible. Uh, every country has its own language, culture, civilization, history, and geography. So people think and do business in a completely different way from one country to another. This is a, so that's the first thing. Uh, um, I always give to my students a world map, an Australian world map. So they see the, the world from an Australian point of view, which means Europe is not the center of, of the universe, but it's Australia. And this allows them to understand what, what Yves Lacoste already explained. There's a very dangerous uh, uh, situation. We call it the mirror effect. People imagine that uh, foreign businessmen or academia, they think or they work exactly the same way as they do. And they try to analyze everything with their own criteria. This is a very difficult to understand and very difficult to explain uh, to, to, to the others. Um, I think the key point is just to be a very open-minded person and a good listener to understand that there is not just one truth, but many truths. And it depends on uh, each country's origins, history, geography, climate, etc. So um, uh, this is, uh, I was found in, in very complicated situations dealing with, with businessmen coming from different countries who didn't want to accept that. It's very funny, and I was he, they were telling me always, uh, what I do is perfect. I have a good thing to sell. Why I cannot find clients here? Because you don't apply all these written and unwritten rules that dominate cross-cultural business and politics. What can we learn from the cross-cultural affairs in French politics, not to compare French politics to politics in other countries, but to understand the way French politics work from a cross-cultural affair point of view. I would like, however, to start with an international comparison. You know, in, in politics, even the same word has not the same meaning. I'll give an example. In, in, in English, we say liberal, in French, liberal. So a liberal in France means someone, a business-friendly, someone of the right, central right, more or less. Uh, in the United States, a liberal is someone of the far left. So they say even the same word has not the same uh, meaning from one country to another. So that's why you sh we should be very careful when we study comparative politics. Even the terms of the right or the left have not the same meaning from one country to another. French politics. You know, France is a very old country. France history started from 1843, after Jesus Christ, the, the Treaty of Verdun, when the three sons of Charlemagne split it, the empire. It's an old nation. 
very old nature. It used to be a kingdom for 1,000 uh, years and then became a republic. So the first thing is that because France such an old nation with a continuity, so never was occupied by another nation like, like uh, Spain or, or Greece. So you have a very old nation built uh, by the conquest of small duchies and small states by the French king. That's the first. So this tradition, old tradition, local tradition, local identities. And we see that in French politics. You know, it's very funny for me when I, I was participating in political meetings in France, seeing local flags and coat of arms of Normandy, of Brittany, of different, of Lyon, of different regions. You have these old kingdoms, old duchies that's still there. So the French politics remind me of the American politics. It, it, there's not just one election. There are 101 French departments. There are 101 local elections. And each election is different from one department to another. Another thing that's very interesting, uh, November 28, 2016, I participated in the National Congress of the UMP. Uh, it's a conservative party. Nicolas Sarkozy was there. And Tony Blair, it's very interesting. Tony Blair was a former British prime minister, Labour. It's very interesting. I can assure you, uh, Tony Blair sp uh, speaks French fluently. And it was a big surprise. He managed to, to seduce 15,000 French voters. Not only he speaks French fluently, he also knows a lot of things about the French sense of humor. So Tony Blair said, if I were a French politician, I could become a Nicolas Sarkozy's minister. That's amazing. You see the cleavage between right and left does not exist. That's very interesting. Well, uh, never forget that Nicolas Sarkozy, when he was elected president, he named some socialist politicians as ministers. For example, Bernard Kouchner, a doctor, Médecins Sans Frontières, was named as uh, minister of foreign affairs. So, so ideologically speaking, things are not so clear from one country to another, and especially within the French politics. Then uh, I had a very tough time in London School of Economics uh, a few years ago trying to explain Gaullism. Gaullism is a very uh, strange political ideology. Theoretically speaking, it's a conservatism. Uh, but, you know, Gaullism started as a not a political movement, it's a military one, it's, it's a resistance against Nazis. So they were Gaullist of the right, of the center, and of the left. That's a paradox. And um, after uh, the, uh, the World War II, it was converted into some kind of conservatism, but the liberal conservatism. I give an example, uh, co combining at the same time conservative vision of society, but a surprising openness to modernity and innovation. We should never forget that Charles de Gaulle converted an agricultural country like France in a big industrial nation. There was no, the French industry was not as strong before de Gaulle. And never forget that it was General de Gaulle who gave the vote, the right to vote to women. So how one consider someone conservative by doing such things? So explaining um, French uh, uh, politics uh, uh, is uh, a very, very complicated affair, not easy to understand. When we first met before this interview, we discussed about the hybrid alliances that 
uh, have broken the news recently, and I'm pretty sure there might be more to come. How do you envisage 21st century geopolitics? That's a huge question. You know, a few months ago, I wrote a paper and I described the 21st geopolitics as Janusian. I was inspired by the double-faced Roman god. Uh, because for me, uh, on the one hand, nothing is going to change. The five permanent members of the UN Security Council, the big powers, uh, USA, Russia, China, France, the UK, as well as some uh, G7 or G20 countries will dominate international geopolitics. So it's business as usual. On the other hand, there will be a new style uh, kind of geopolitics. First of all, I was explaining that yesterday to my students, what we call high-tech geopolitics. The goal is not anymore to control a territory or a national resource, but above all, a technological innovation. I give an example. Um, you know, there is a huge struggle between the European Commission and Apple for the unique charger. So uh, the last 15 years, the European Union wants a unique charger for all small electronic devices, including smartphones, for different reasons, for ecology reasons, for helping Europeans to move from one country to another without any problem. However, GAFAs don't like that. So you have a new, a new kind of geopolitical struggle between a big company, Apple, and uh, a, a, a hybrid organization like the European Union about technological innovation. These are the high-tech geopolitics. We have many examples about uh, the same style about that. Um, another thing I was reading about uh, space uh, moon mining. You know, theoretically speaking, moon or the planets have the same legal status in Antarctica. We should just do some scientific research. However, everything is about to change. Already in 2019, there was a deal, uh, a deal signed by ESA, European Space Agency, and Ariane, which, which is a French company uh, building uh, spacecrafts, uh, for mining missions on the moon to find regolith or some, some minerals on the moon to extract them and bring them back to the Earth. And a few days ago, Chinese uh, space agency announced that they found big quantities of helium-3 on the moon. Helium-3 could be uh, uh, used for producing energy. According, uh, uh, according to, to Chinese specialists, there is enough helium-3 on the moon to offer energy on the Earth for the next 10,000 years. So now we're going to, to, to have perhaps to deal with moon Geopolitics. It's not science fiction. It's true. Uh, it's everyday life. You know, there are just two countries in the world that have officially created a space army, a space military force. The first one is the United States, and the second one is France. There is no consciousness in geopolitics. So we're talking about space tourism, about space exploration, about the Artemis operation, the moon. And, you know, when we start dealing with mining and natural resources, the same thing happened in California or in Australia uh, many years ago. You know exactly what's going to happen. Geopolitical rivalries, uh, uh, conflicts, uh, disputes, as usual. So it, it will happen. Probably the same thing is about to happen in the eastern of Mediterranean or in the Caucasus Mountain or in the east of Ukraine. 
So you see, as I told you, uh, 21st century geopolitics seem to me Janusian. On the one hand, nothing is going to change. The big power game with big powers, the ones against the other, China, against the United States, Taiwan, etc. And on the other hand, many things are about to change, especially with high tech, with disruptive technological uh, evolution, and especially between or because of moon or space uh, geopolitics. So I'm really curious to see what's going to happen finally. I'm also very much interested in space exploration. And I read recently that uh, China is competing with the United States uh, as the United States through its Artemis program is not only planning to create a permanent base on the moon, but actually to use that base on the moon for human journeys to Mars. And China actually wants to compete NASA for the first human space flights to happen from Earth or from the Moon to the Mars by 2030. At the same time, I would like to underline the importance of creating some regulations for space exploration, especially in regard to the Moon. The Moon has an ecosystem that we haven't entirely mapped. We know that the moon is the only satellite of Earth and a very helpful one because it protects us for millions of years from dangerous asteroids. And we don't know if this super mining of China to provide for thousands of years energy to Earth is going to affect, for example, our gravity, right? So we have to be very careful there. Now, moving on, given the ever-changing French politics in terms of having new political parties every 10 to 12 years, how could this affect the countries, meaning France's current partnerships, especially in the Eastern Mediterranean? First of all, you know, France has a long-standing presence in Eastern Mediterranean for many centuries. Uh, uh, it's not something that started uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 50 years ago. It started 200 years ago. So, uh, for example, France has historically, traditionally, uh, very strong ties with Lebanon. When the big explosion took place in the port of Beirut, the Lebanese army asked the help from the French army. And the France sent a, a lot of equipment there to help soldiers, to help Lebanon army. So France has strong ties in this area, for example, France has also very strong ties with Egypt. Uh, they don't only sell uh, military equipment, they are a big partnership with Egypt. So uh, France has a strong presence uh, uh, a long time ago uh, in the eastern of Mediterranean. And, and no matter uh, who is in charge in French politics, who is the president, the prime minister, this will never change. Uh, it's something that uh, started uh, 300 years ago, it will continue the years to come. You know, I was reading an article this morning. Uh, there is a French frigate uh, from uh, the name of frigate is Auvergne in Larnaca in Cyprus. And uh, this uh, it's, it's, it's a brand new ship, a more very modern ship. And it visited Cyprus 11 times within th the last three years. And this ship will stay there until January 2022. So first of all, we should not underestimate the ties, the alliance between France and Cyprus. There are strong ties, and uh, there is also a, a maritime supervision aircraft, a French one, 
based in Paphos. So France has a permanent presence or very strong military presence and strong allies, like with Lebanon, with Cyprus, with Egypt in the Eastern Mediterranean. So we have to see, to have the whole picture, the big image. Then we have another thing, the, the French-Greek intranato uh, pact. This is something very interesting. For, for the French, this could be considered as the first step of a new era. We should create some kind of a stronger military branch of the European Union. See what happened just yesterday in the Polish-Belarusian borders. Uh, army and police could not handle the situation. This is exactly what happens in the GNC, exactly what happens in Spain, exactly what happens in Lampedusa in Italy. So, as I said before, for young Europeans, most problems now, we already know that. Europeans, they are, no, they are not French, Italian, Greeks, or Spanish. We have European issues and European problems, and we know that we must deal with them as Europeans. So, perhaps one day, it's a matter of uh, European nations will wake up and take the necessary measures to, in order to guarantee their own defense. You know, since a long time ago, Harry Kissinger was looking for European Union's phone number. And even Donald Trump said something uh, uh, very reasonably. He said, you should spend at least 2% of your uh, GDP uh, for defense. The Americans should not always pay for the European uh, defense. So there are a few countries like France or Greece that they, they achieve this goal. So, and I think, it's my opinion, that the AUKUS Pact sent a clear message, Joe Biden sent a clear message to Europeans that for different geopolitical reasons, uh, Americans' top priority is now the Pacific Ocean. You know, it's a big country, United States, they make a clear choice. So you Europeans, you have now uh, perhaps to change your attitude and to start perhaps thinking about building a stronger European defense. So the Greek-French uh, uh, intranato uh, uh, pact should be seen as the first step of a new era. Never forget that just uh, in, in one month, beginning January 2022, France will be, uh, Manuel Macron will be the president of the, French, of, of the European count, uh, Council. So, so perhaps the French presidency will be a golden opportunity in order to work on this project because uh, we see what's happening and uh, European Union uh, needs to wake up, we're the second biggest market in the world, the second biggest economic power in the world. We need a strong army and police forces to protect ourselves. So that's how the French see that. What do the Greek politics and geopolitics need to pay attention to in the era of hybrid alliances and the fast changing world based on disruptive technologies from a cross-cultural point of view? As I told you, every country has its own civilization, tradition, culture, uh, and way of thought. There are 196 countries in the world. I fully respect all these countries. Um, you know, uh, I spent 28 years of my life in Greece. Uh, Greeks are Mediterranean people, nation, just like Italian, Spanish, which means they think uh, they have a sentimental approach in many things, including economy, politics, international relations, etc. I think the first thing we need is to follow a rational uh, analysis based on data, based on fact, based on national interest. 
This is for me something of vital importance uh, for, 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 for the future of Greek politics and geopolitics. We should uh, analyze the situation. We should understand which is the national interest, as Cardinal Rochelier was saying uh, a few centuries ago, uh, raison d'état. And then we, we need to, to, to make clear choices. Uh, I'm quite optimist about hybrid alliances. NATO is not sufficient anymore. Uh, there will be a lot of meetings in Athens between uh, Greece, Cyprus, uh, Egypt, or Greece, Israel, uh, and Cyprus, France, etc., etc. For, for, for me, all these alliances are a patchwork. The one is complementary with the other. We need to, to, to uh, build strong ties, military ties, economic ties, cultural ties, uh, all that, with other countries sharing the same vision of the world. So the first thing we should uh, follow a more rational analysis, not a sentimental one. The second thing uh, I compare with the French uh, foreign policy. You know, what I admire here is that Kedorsay, Kedorsay is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in France. Here they have a long-term strategy about everything, not a short-term. This, this is the French uh, uh, way of doing uh, business and politics all over the world. So the second thing is that we should not wait for the next crisis, for the next big problem, to try to find, with a lot of effort, with a lot of, of goodwill, to find a solution, or a magical solution. We should start working at the same time. I know it's very hard, short term and long term. By working the long term, this allows us to better analyze situations and better define priorities. Greece is a small country. And in the Greek history, since uh, 1828, uh, Greece needs uh, strong alliances, especially by big, with big European uh, powers. Uh, so that's the two things, uh, I think. But I'm, I'm quite optimist about hybrid alliances. Uh, we saw with AUKUS, the Americans showed the example. NATO or 20th or 19th century alliances uh, and organizations perhaps should change. Perhaps in one day, the, the UN Security Council, uh, Germany could go, Japan could be a member. We never know, G, G7 or G20 uh, would change. So we live in a fast changing world. Another thing you said about disruptive technologies, yes, of course, this could be a golden opportunity. You know, there are Greek origin scientists all over the world. I cannot find a university, uh, no matter the country, and I always find a Greek name. So I think Greece has a strong potential uh, uh, people who are highly specialized in disruptive technologies, and we should perhaps do something in, in order to uh, improve things. From my last question to you, George, I would like to ask to seriously consider the fact that Greece should have a long-term geostrategic policy regardless of uh, any political changes in the country Taken as an example, uh, that of France, whose internal politics change constantly, given the historical framework. Thank you, George, for speaking to the Global Greek Influence podcast and sharing your cross-cultural expertise on the French political scene and foreign affairs, the European Union integration, the 21st century geopolitics and hybrid alliances. Thank you very much. 
Thank you all for listening to George's cross-cultural perspective on global politics and geopolitics. Stay tuned until next Sunday.